Hi, listeners. We want to tell you about some upcoming live events where you can join Kate and I. We're excited to announce that our upcoming Tend Her 3.0 program is happening. This is our third year in a row where we've received a grant that allows us to offer this program for free for up to 1,000 women. Our theme this year is resilience. We've realized these fast-moving times that are filled with lots of complexity require resilience. So in this four-week online program, we're going to be learning the science of resiliency, as well as all the tools that we need to strengthen our resiliency muscle. Registration for this opens October 4, and the program starts October 23. In addition, we are so excited to announce that this year we're adding to the Tend Her program an in-person Women's Resiliency Summit on Friday, November 17th from 9 to 4 p.m. It's going to be held at Little Lights on the Lane. Registration for this event will open October 23rd, the first day of the Tend Her 3.0 program. If you want to be first to know, follow us on Instagram at Kate Moreland Coaching, at Dr. Yoga Mama, and at Tend Her Wild. Last but certainly not least, consider joining Kate and I for a full live and in-person week of rewilding in the wilds of Costa Rica on yoga and meditation retreat, May 11th to the 18th, this coming 2024. Space is limited, but for more information on this event and how to register, go to www.oneyogaglobal.com. That's O-N-E, yogaglobal.com. This episode is being sponsored by Revival, a women-owned and operated clothing store located in downtown Iowa City, offers a curated selection of modern, resale, and vintage clothing and gifts. Revival focuses on brands that empower women and promote ethical and sustainable practices. Making sure your wardrobe and your style look great while doing our planet and community good. Celebrating 20 years this fall, find them on the Ped Mall in downtown Iowa City or shop 24-7 online at RevivalIwaCity.com. Use promo code TENDHER23 for 15% off your purchase. Who are you before you lost your wild self? That's what we're helping you explore on the Tend Her Wild podcast. Through questions and tools around how best to listen to your inner voice, rewild ourselves, and live the most authentic life where we thrive instead of survive. I'm Betsy. And I'm Kate. And we're so glad you've joined us for this episode. Tender Wild podcast listeners, we have a special guest and you have heard parts of her before because her daughter made an appearance on our (laughs) Barbie episode. And so we're excited to have <laughs> Lyra's mom, Dr. Beth Hello, you Livingston. You just call her Lyra's mom. Just Lyra's mom. That's how I'm known oh, most of the a, time anyway. Exactly. So it's this is a, a beautiful chance to see multi-generational wisdom coming forth. So let mm. me tell you about Dr. Beth. She is an associate professor in management and entrepreneurship at the University of Iowa's Tippie College of Business. She's a research researcher, speaker, and consultant working with companies and nonprofits such as East St. Laurent Beauty, H&I, John Deere, and Hollaback. 
Her research has been highlighted in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, and on NPR, one of my favorite things, and has been published in several top academic journals. She is co-author of the book, Shared Sisterhood, How to Take Collective Action for Racial and Gender Equity at Work with her co-author, Dr. Tina Opie. So we are so excited to dive into a conversation with you, Beth, today. So thank you for being with us. I'm excited. This is fun. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if Lyra gave you any advice today. Um, (laughs) Lyra gives me advice all day, every day. Whether it's good or not remains to be seen. But she just said, oh, you'll have fun. And I'm sure I already am. Oh, well, Beth, um, you probably know we like to start kind of at the beginning, uh, We'd love to hear about your first 10 years and anything that really shaped you, experiences, things that you look back and think they were really formative for you. And I think it helps see the thread of your life. And I know from reading your book, you had a, you know, a really interesting upbringing yeah. um, in the South. And so, yeah, share with us those first 10 years, anything. So I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, I'm from Louisville because I say it, Louisville. Louisville. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they say it's Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and I am the youngest of three children. My brothers are nine and 11 years older than me. So my eldest niece is 11 years younger than I am. And she's getting married this mm-hmm. fall. So like, we're just, you know, yeah. this really interesting multi-generational family um, and the way in which I was raised. Um and I lived in Kentucky and in Jefferson County, Kentucky. What's interesting about that is there's actually a, a hot spot of busing, right? And so in the South, there was an, pretty much everywhere throughout the country when we had this sort of de facto segregation of, you know, Black kids living in some areas of town, white kids in other areas of town. Um, one of the ways that schools sought to desegregate was to bus kids from one area to another to go to different schools. Um, Jefferson County, where I went to school, did this a lot and actually was a subject of a Supreme Court case in the early 2000s to get rid of this sort of practice. But at the time that I went to school and my brothers went to school, there was a rule. I I can't remember the exact percentage, but there couldn't be more than certain percentage of one race of children in the class. So if there was like no more than 70% white kids, right? Mm -hmm. And so then they would, or 70% black kids in in those schools and there's community schools. So here and I were used to kind of like community schools, like you go to the school based on where you live. And that was true, except, right, there were some proportion of kids who were bused to different community schools. And it's a very large city. I think there's like 18 high schools in my county, right? It's it's a big place. Um, And, you know, so children were bused. Well, that meant that, you know, when you played sports, my my brothers, pretty much my two older brothers only had black friends. Um, mm. And so my house was filled with uh, white, uh, my two white brothers and their black teenage friends my entire time growing up. This is kind of how I grew up, not really thinking about my gender, because oh, except yeah. for the fact of what it limited me from being able to be taken seriously. Right. Oh. Um, but also seeing race in a very different way, where who did I feel most comfortable around? black teenage boys because they were like my brothers they were they were the people i looked up to most yeah they're still like they still consider me their little sister so facebook friends they're like with them. yeah they're like mm-hmm. as our little sister my my kids are you know come to auntie day you know like they're just come it's so so these are just a really formative part of how i grew up so my the way I saw race was different than the way I saw gender. And that ha- that kept up for a long time because I didn't see my gender in the same way I saw my race, which is a flip, I think, to what a lot of white women yes. can start with. Um, yeah. That was my childhood, particularly for those first 10 years, because my brothers moved out 
when I was nine years old, right? Uh, my, my, my youngest you brother, the only child. child. I was an only child. Wow. Yeah. So just really interesting, you know, unique sort of to where just what happened with yeah. my brothers of how I grew up with that. But it definitely informed the curiosity I had about different things later when I got to college and was able to kind of build a community. Yeah. So yeah. as you move away from this very unique first 10 years and you move mm -hmm. into college and then clearly this, we're going to get to it, has informed your academic work. Yeah. Were there any like shockers when you went to college and you started to see racism or sexism? Yeah. I mean, talk about when, when kind of the real world hit you and- the impact of that. So in high school, so I think this is what's interesting. And, and, you know, as young kids, so much of what you observe about the world is filtered through your own, like, self-importance, right? Like, mm. you're the center of your world, which is not a bad thing. It's just natural of who we are. And you're filtering everything through that. I didn't understand, like, power, right? I didn't understand mm. the history of why they were being bust. Like, I didn't know, right? They just were, right? Like, kids just were where they right. were. Um, and when I went to school, high school, you know, many years later, that busing was still happening, right? And so my school was still more diverse than probably what many schools that many of your listeners went to, right? Like just right. in terms of the way it was. And, you know, I think I started learning in high school how particularly some, some, and I write, we wrote about this in the book, how some black girls saw me, which was, are you... Like, do you really truly care about like, can us? Can we trust you? Right? Like, can you, you know, are you, are like, are you just, you know, dabbling in like some sort of rebellion against your white parents? You know, like mm -hmm. there's wow. because of the kind of generational trauma of how white and black women have often interacted mm -hmm. in our country. And I didn't understand that. To me, I took that very personally. I'm like, well, why wouldn't you, like, I'm so nice. Like, why wouldn't you like yeah. me? Like, I don't understand because I, I didn't have that ability yet. And we didn't have, it's pre-internet time. I mean, there's internet, but it's pre like connecting on the internet. Social media, yeah. Being able to look things up. Like I I would have had to add, know which questions to ask the librarian to understand what I, you know, what I needed to understand. So it was confusing to you yeah. that you would try to reach out to these black women, these black girls, and they would- Very confusing. They would kind of push you away or-, or... everybody, right? Like, I mean, I had lots of friends, you know, and, and I think looking back, but there were some moments where I remember kind of this standoffishness, yeah. which, you know, we all know when people are being standoffish right. to us, when people are being polite, but not, but not close, right? Or they're keeping you at arm's length. Like you can tell, we all know. And I was particularly just by my personality, like attuned to that, right? Mm -hmm. To that kind of distance. And, you know, I think what became clear was, and this is very straight up was, oh, she's not trying to just date black men and like, you know, secretly, which a lot of white girls in the South in particular would, you know, be happy to date black men, but wouldn't tell their parents right. because mm -hmm. that wasn't, you know, appropriate considered appropriate or allowed. And I didn't even think about that. Like that wasn't, that didn't, and I had to learn, right. Mm -hmm. I had to learn, oh, there's a history here that isn't about me, but is about me. Right. Yes. Right? Yeah. We, oh, we have to kind of own, own that, that yeah. even though we may not individually. Yeah, I didn't, that it's not feeling. that I caused, it wasn't my fault, but it was my responsibility. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, gosh, it's so interesting how that certainly that groundwork was laid for you yeah, in her childhood. Yeah. Yeah. So deeply. And you, your experiences, I'm sure 
those early experiences, like you became, I see you as an advocate. I see you as I try academic, like <laughs> bridge but, builder. Yeah. Which all of those things were, you know, set, you know, your experiences set you up to move in that direction. And so there's some authenticity, even just in thinking about you writing this book, because, and I got that right away. I'm like, she's lived this. And, and I think it's important to kind of note, like, this was not, I didn't have that experience and go, oh, I perfectly understand you. Now I know everything about, like, there was defensiveness. There mm-hmm. was, well, how, how can you think that I'm that way? Like, I'm, like, I'm me. Like, how can you not just see me for who I am? Like, there was, pain. it was, a, it, it was pain and it was difficult. Like, there mm-hmm. were many years of me kind of flailing, trying to understand something and understand. And getting to college helped because I took class. I was able to take classes about mm-hmm. race, mm-hmm. about what whiteness was. Like I was able to learn from people and go. And this was actually long before the last decade yeah. of yeah. increased awareness. Yes. Of this was in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And late nineties, early two thousands where I was coming. And so, you know, I had the privilege of not having to understand the history around this right and not and my parents not having the real skills to be able to teach that there was a lot of we I grew up in a very religious Christian household and it was a lot of well God loves everybody the same and everybody is the same and so that I came to in a very what I kind of talk about in the book a very individual love I love you as a person I care about you in person as a person but in order for that love to truly be realized I had to understand and empathize with the system that that people were living in the water they were swimming in. That wasn't the same water I was swimming in. And I Mm -hmm. had to, I couldn't, it's not, I don't know. I guess it was realizing, is it full love to be like, yes, I love you, but I don't need to understand. I don't need to understand you, or I'm not going to take the time, even if it causes me pain to understand you. And so that's, that's what college was for me was that journey Mm -hmm. of, of learning that, but all of this to say, I neglected a bunch of gender stuff, which is ironic considering where I am oh, now. Yeah, That's talk about that. We're more focused on understanding yes. this racial difference versus the gender differences, which is we. I want to set this book up because we're sort of swimming around this book. <laughs> and I want to just say you wrote this amazing book called Shared Sisterhood and you wrote it with a black woman. Mm-hmm. And the thesis of the book is that can black women and white women actually be friends? Yeah. And that the point is that women often, white women often choose gender equity over racial ethnicity equity. Mm -hmm. And so you guys are picking this apart in this book. Yes. And, but it's, it is funny, right? Because, you know, Tina and I, we are friends, but our shared sisterhood isn't just about friendship. It's about the fact that there can be people that maybe you don't even get along with well, but we can still work together in an authentic way, which I think isn't we can get to later on, but you know, I, I didn't hadn't thought about the gender stuff as much as the racial stuff. And that's probably what made me ability to gave me the ability to be more open mm-hmm. about this yes. because I wasn't layering race on gender. I was laying gender on race, if that makes sense. Yeah. My and that is so flipped from know, my yeah. experience. Me too. Of course, as you read Different the book, I, as I read the book, I was like, yeah, I have thought about gender equity more mm-hmm. than racial equity yeah. in my own lifetime. And not the intersection In the way you guys lay this out. I wonder too, do you think your upbringing with all this male energy, masculine Mm -hmm. energy also kind of formed the fact that you didn't think about being necessarily a girl? I ran from that. I ran from the feminine for a very Mm. long time. I guess when I became aware 
that I was, no matter how much I ran from it, I was a woman and would be associated with all the good and bad that the world Mm. saturated femininity with. And that there was no reason for me to run from that. Mm. Like that I could be all the things like that was Mm. another step in my development. Yeah. When When was that? Like, when did you start to embrace that? When you said the eighties and nineties, I like, I immediately, cause that's my coming of age too. You can, girls can be anything boys can just do it like a boy. Yeah. A masculinized version. And you write about that in your book that like, that's how we get ahead is be competitive, be dominant, negotiate just like men do. And you'll get ahead, which we now have new. And you went into a masculine field. You went into business and entrepreneur. You're a business professor. I am. Mm -hmm. And it, I, so I realized this, God, it's so embarrassingly late, (laughs) but um, I'm looking now. I'm like, Oh, I've been doing this for. Do not be embarrassed. We are. We, we have like just recently in the last couple of years had, I feel like this understanding of the feminine and masculine, masculine. and how we, each of us have been trying so to reclaim our own self. Yeah. And, and I think I, that's our generation too. We yes. get to middle age and think what the hell We're I'm broken. like, yeah, so much by our so many culture, things we didn't yeah. understand and the difficulty in finding communities to help us critically break that down, which where were they? Yeah. No, but right. so I first, I say this in, in all of the, the kind of critical academies of it all, right? Like I first realized that I was, that the world saw me as a woman first when I was a senior in college, right? Mm -hmm. Because at that, up until that point, I was a big fish in a small pond. Like I was the top student. I was the smartest kid in my high school. Like there was no way around, even if they wanted to dismiss me, there just was no way they could. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this doesn't touch me. Right. Yes. Ooh. And that's a young, that I, yeah. I understand that feeling as a young person and touch me. having young people in Maybe my house right now. Maybe that's important to you. Yeah. I'm, I'm not affected it. by it. Right. Yes. I, I'm, I'm unique in how I, I'm, I'm special. And there was a point in which I kind of was to a point, right? Like you couldn't deny me things that I just, objectively you're like well you she just is right like my test scores were like I was national man like I did all that stuff like I was just that and then I got to college in my senior year I still was the top kid in my university like my transcript says number one of however many in the whole college right like yeah very smart kid I started to look for jobs and wanted to go into sports marketing because of course sports like this is what yeah Ooh, I see and where this story is I know, going. me too. That, the, keep going. The, the, I started applying for jobs and I wanted to be in like, like actual, like I wanted to work for the NFL or for, do you know what I mean? Like I yeah. wanted to work at these, these, you know, movers and shakers. Institutions. In the of athletic, these institutions. Thank you. In this world of athletics. And I would get, you'd be great in women's apparel, like for Reebok women's apparel. Like, and I'm oh going, my God. no, like, I don't want to do that. No, but you'd be so good at it. Like, you know. If I applied to Nike, I wanted to work in corporate, like right. corporate strategy. And they were like, maybe like sales. Mm. And I'm like, okay. She started to bump up against yeah. their expectations for me. And I was like, how can you, like, I know I see other women, but like really me. And then I realized, oh no, Beth, you can't avoid it. You can't run from it. And I'm embarrassed that like, I thought myself so above and so special from that. Um, and then uh, the third, the, there were three things that happened in close succession. So it was that one. Then I was doing like a case competition, you know, with my, where in business school, what you do is they give you a case, you run with a team, you have a certain limited number of a t- of time and you come up with a strategic solution and you present your solution and like people from the community judge you. 
So I was always the top kid. Like I was the one leading everything. I presented everything, stand up presenting, had, you know, got it, had a pinstripe suit. I loved like, here I am all like <laughs> pants or skirt. Yeah. Pants. Oh yeah. Okay. But yeah, okay. but you know, check. right. I, and I actually a really short haircut, like a very, oh yeah. Hello. Um, and, but I have all these earrings. They're not very many. Like, look at me. These are not very many earrings, but the, She's got three. Oh, yeah. Ear. Okay. Yeah. And usually, and there's a fourth. I just don't have a whole of anything. Okay, else, she's right? got so four. Four, four one ear. <laughs> and you had it that back then? Yes. Not that many, right? I give stand up and the first question, I, we give our presentation and the, the room's asking questions. And one of the local people in the community, first thing he raises, he was like, more of a comment than a question, of course. More uh, of a comment. Wait, 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 wait. Right. So you would be, so young lady, you would, you know, I'm going to advise you to wear fewer earrings if you want to be taken seriously. Okay. So now Beth would. Can take I just a ask breath. older white man? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's a given, but maybe probably that was rude of me to assume that you would know. But yes. And I did not react well. Like I, I, <laughs> I, you know, got the flushed red in the face. I tend to cry when I get mad. And so I'm sure I had tears in my eyes. But I was like, what on earth do my earrings have to do with anything? That was my You reaction. said it. <laughs> okay. Good for you. Okay. Oh. No, not, well, it hurt my team because my, <sighs> you know what I'm saying? Like oh. my team got, it was. Dinged because of it. And so I had to own that and apologize to my team. Uh, I've never had that happen. No, uh, my team was like, no, Beth, go. I just want to say, I feel like our generation very much had these experiences where people unabashedly. Hide half of your Hide. whole self. Yes. Yeah. Especially half, your earrings. Apparently. Apparently. Apparently a bunch of hoop earrings. Mm -hmm. Completely unprofessional, ladies and gentlemen. Had yeah. no idea. But at least I didn't when I was 21 years old. Wow. But and you, so you got dinged for it. And yeah. For it. And then. Um, so that was the second thing. That was the second thing. And then I was working um, for a professor as he had a sports marketing academy, right? Where we he would put a conference together every year. And I was like, my my kind of job during school, one of the many little piece jobs I put together was I like ran everything, right? Like I was like kind of the program manager. Like he did most of, he did all the strategic work, but like I sent out all the emails and I planned the venue. Like I did all that sort of stuff. And when we had one of the conferences and one of the men who came in, he introduced himself and I said, oh yes, I've been doing the program. Of course it would say the professor's name on it, but like I would write everything because I knew women wrote that email. And I was like, mm. what is that supposed to mean? Mm. And he's like, oh, you know. And I was like, do yeah. not know, not, not clear. But those three things happened within a few months of each other. Wow. And my reaction, other than just like rage, because I hadn't, I hadn't felt that rage on behalf of myself before. Right. And so it just yeah. builds up. And we all women, we know that feeling of just that despair rage where you're like, is this my life? Is this yeah. my future? Must is I play this game? Yeah, yes. Must I play this game to be able to achieve yes. what I want to achieve? Um, and I made a choice and I went to one of my professors and I said, surely there are things you can give me to read on like gender equity in organizations. And he gave me some stuff and I was like, how do we not have this figured out yet? Like, didn't you all, all my predecessors figure this out yet? Like what is happening? Why am I dealing with this? And mm -hmm. at that moment I decided to go to grad school. Cause I decided I couldn't, I, this is again, more naivete. I didn't want to play the corporate game anymore. Mm -hmm. I was like, I know what I'm going to have to deal with now. Like if I they're not it. hitting on me, 
which I thought I could handle. Like I thought I, that I could just deflect and handle, right? Every woman at that age, like you get used to like deflecting male right. attention, but I wasn't expected to be undermined, like, um, you dismissing know, your intellect. yes, intelligence, intellectually. Yes. Because that was always secure. That for was you. always, you yeah. always knew you were intelligent. A hundred percent. And that, the undermining of my competence that I could not stand. For. Mm. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to find the answers to these things wow. that, that if you all can't find, I'm going to figure it out. So right? how old would you have been then? I was mm. about 22, 21, 22. That's amazing. Actually. It was, it was it was fast once it happened and it was because I sought out the right people to kind of give me advice about it. But that was the beginning of the journey. That's when the journey started, okay. right? Mm. I still had a lot more to uncover about, and I still had to learn the intersectionality of it all, right? Yeah. Um, which was, oh yeah, Beth, you're new to this, but a lot of other people have not had the privilege that you've had to be able to ignore it for 21 years of your life. But I have to <laughs> say, I'm really relating to this idea that it took me a long time as well to see gender inequality. And I have this memory of even like in college, my father saying something, well, you've had every opportunity that a boy has, a man has, and mm -hmm. thinking like, okay, yeah, I think I have, like not realizing my it. And could have now yeah. looking back and realizing like, oh my gosh, no, there, there were so many things that I had to work harder at because I was harder. a woman Yeah, just because but not seeing it until much load. later. So I think we don't yes. see, cause we swam in that ocean our whole lives. We don't see it until later how actually it was a lot more effort. It was a yeah. lot more work. I did have to push more. I did have to prove myself more. And all the extra stuff in the context, right? I had to be more aware of what I wore. I had to be mm -hmm. more aware of my natural, my natural personality is incredible. Like I like to say I'm a bunch of chaotic, good energy. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> and my natural energy is very like when we connecting on something, I'm like, yes, well, you have to be very careful how you react like that to many men, because mm. they're going to take that, which I learned much to my chagrin in a much different way than I intended to. Yeah. And that's an extra load. Like I have to mm, dial back to tone myself. I'm too big. I have to I tone myself down. I'm too, I'm what I thought was good communication. I'm going to look in your eye. We're going to talk. We're going to connect. No, 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 no. And so like mm. that extra layer on, yeah. well, how do I be my authentic self while also not getting hit on by every Tom, right. Dick and Harry who happens to be walking by the building, wow. right? Um, which in a masculine field, there are lots of Tom, Dick and Harry. Yes, there are. <laughs> well, so I think it is good to acknowledge the emotional load that we carry on top of everything else of, yeah. I remember feeling like I was always looking over my shoulder. I was always trying mm -hmm. to calculate or don't raise your hand too much, but enough that enough. someone doesn't, right. Don't be too much. Don't be too, you know, and, um, which I didn't have in high school. Like I did not, see I didn't that either. In high school. I didn't either. And then it was college was the slow build of understanding that other people were seeing me differently than I saw myself, no matter how hard I worked, mm -hmm. no matter how objective my abilities were, which we talk about a lot. And like, well, I mean, some people are objectively better. Well, I was objective, not just to my own heart. I was objectively better in a lot of ways. And still it was, but are you right? Like, because we can pick the metrics we want to pick mm. based on, yeah. you know, how we want to do. And that is something. And as I went through, I still, 
you know, I, it took a long time for me. I feel like it was probably about the time I moved here when I really felt like I got my arms around the really the embracing the feminine part of me, the masculine part mm. of me. I couldn't have written this book five years ago, six, seven years ago. Like I wasn't the right person to write this book. And and I, Tina and I have been connected for a very long time. We were in graduate school, not at the same. She went to NYU. I went to Florida. Yeah. How, tell us how you found yeah. Tina. So Tina and I, we write about this in the book, so it's not kind of a secret, but, you know, Tina and I were in graduate school at the same time. So we graduated kind of the same year um, and graduate school for a PhD in management is a five-year process. Um, She's she's about 10 years older than I am. So she came in after a career, right? And started her and she had children kind of already um, during the process. And, um, you know, I met her, the first time I met her was at a conference. So we have a big conference every year. She was presenting work. She was doing this really cool work on, um, I'm pretty sure the paper was on hair. So like hair tech, like, like she does a lot of work on like natural hair, black women's hair and the way in which we, we professionalize or deprofessionalize certain sort of like beauty standards, which is really fascinating work. And I came up to her and I told you I'm a lot of chaotic energy. Well, there was probably literal skipping involved. I'm just like, oh, I'm so excited. Like, ah, uh, like a puppy, right? Like, like your golden retriever. But I, again, and now own that. I'm not ashamed of that. But, mm. um, you know, she likes to laugh that she saw this white woman skipping up to her and she's like, whoa, what's happening? Like, what are, because she had already had a career full of often white mm. women who would, be her friend to her face, but be happy to throw her under the bus if if the work was, you know, like, or take opportunities from her. And so, you know, she was standoffish with me, but not impolite, but like we weren't, it was clear she wasn't letting me in. Yeah. And I, at that moment, like had to decide, well, do I take that personally or do I persist? Right. And I chose in that moment to persist. I could have made a different choice. Like, and I think all the time, if I would have made a different choice, I've been like, well, that's her loss. Like, I'm great. Like, <laughs> which we do all the time. Right. right. I have done that. But yeah. something inside you was like, something you kept inside at it. was empathy. Right. Which was, well, why might yeah. she? And, oh, well, maybe like Beth, you know, you, you have black women who are some of your good friends. You know what they have gone through in this. So think about so that, that early upbringing informed that choice right there. Like yeah. black women friends I had at that point who weren't her, right? Yes. And it was me again, decentering myself, but mm-hmm. it takes an active, right? I was still very young. I was early in the journey of really trying to understand the intersectionality of it all. And I had to actively say, you know, it's almost like an active shake where you're like, get out of your own, you know, self-pity Beth of that someone doesn't like you. And like, cause you're really trying and you're really real. Yeah. And this person is still not letting me in. Yeah. And I had to say, okay, well, I just, I need to prove. And what I realized was, is that she didn't trust me and I, and how silly it was that I was expecting she should trust me from the get go. Right. Funny. Like how funny we walk in. Well, why wouldn't you trust me? Well, because I don't know, like, yeah. I don't know you, but I know me. Right. And we do that. I think with lots of relationships, how long did it take? For her to trust slow, you. So fully trust. I mean, it took a number of years where yeah. we where we were connecting regularly on things that were shared interest. We were both, you know, like we both liked similar types of music. We were we became Facebook friends and started to share little things about our lives that were similar. We both grew up with fathers who were in the military, you know, like little moments that we were able, we were both Southern, like we were able to share these moments. 
And we found out we had a mutual friend who vouched for me and that helped a lot. And it was a black friend. A black yep. Yeah. And it helped a lot. And I would say, you know, that, that building that relationship though, like I had to decenter myself a lot. And I know that sounds so academic. I, I basically had to shake myself and say, Beth, not everything's about you. Not everything is a personal indictment of you, mm. right? Like, and how funny that you would think that you're the center of everyone's universe, right? Mm. But if you care about this person, you want to get to know them more. Well, there are, there's work you can do, right? right? It's not just, well, it's not like it's everything serendipity where you run into someone, and you're like, wow, we have this great global connection. It's an connection. immediate connection. Oh, yeah. like how many relationships in our lives we have to work on, right? Well, and in the book, you talk about authentic relationships and what it takes you know, mm-hmm. takes empathy and vulnerability and yes. trust and all those yeah. things. And that's one of the things I loved about how you two wrote this book. It's like your own journey informs your idea. Like you, you first lived that experience together to be able to have a shared sisterhood to then write this book. Yeah. So this would have been your period where you, and it took, you said years. Yeah. And so there is something to be said for true authentic relationships. And maybe we can even say that about our partnership. Yeah. It takes okay. time to really fully. To get to know. To trust. To trust. To, to and, open. Yeah. To fully. Yeah, yeah. To fully be in it. Yeah. And is one of the things we really wanted to do is, was say, well, what can we learn from just general literature and experiences with friendships? Right. Like what mm-hmm. can we learn from that? But beyond that, what's the unique layer that power differentials adds on this? Um, And the need for the person who is coming from a group that has more power to listen more than they talk, to not Mm -hmm. put themselves in the center of every anecdote. And we do this as women a lot. Like we connect via shared experience, right? We do that. Like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. Here's my experience. And that's how we, we build that doesn't always work as much when it can be perceived as you stealing attention away uh, from, right? Mm-hmm. And so that same technique might backfire because it can be perceived as, oh, well, it's all about you now, right? Like, or you think you understand, but you're not understanding. And it can shut down the other person. Absolutely. And so there's a recognition there. I tend to be that sort of person like, oh, this, like this, like I, to try to communicate, I understand, but that's not what some people need. And I, yeah. Yeah. So would Tina... Um, call you out on that? Or how did you, like, what, like, I guess I want to know, like, what was the dynamic back and forth for both of you to start to trust each other and learn? So, so some of the facilitation happened, like text message, email, like DM, which is a helpful way to talk because you can't talk over each other and you Mm. can sit with things. We are of the mind that this work of racial and gender equity should not be done in public forums and social media. It's not a good place. It's people pop into conversations. We're not on the same. We're not starting from the same place. We're not in it in the same place. We have the same goals and you're just popping in in the conversation and that Mm. can derail, right? But that doesn't mean that technologically mediated communication can't be useful, right? Like when you are able to share and sit with and think about, well, how do I want to respond to something? Maybe I can sit with this discomfort a little bit instead of responding in defensiveness or responding in a way that, that reflects my discomfort. Um, I can sit with that discomfort and I can say, oh, what does that reveal about me? And I can decide whether I take it and say, okay, you're right. Like I have something to work on or no, I actually feel strongly about this. And I want to help you to, to see where I'm coming from. And we had a number of conversations about non, non-race issues, right? We talked about, we talked about gender stuff, stuff that we shared an identity on. We talked about 
teaching our kids about sexual assault. We talked about religion. We talked about a number of different things that we both agreed and disagreed on before we really talked about race. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. We built some trust. Now it was clear from the get-go, we shared the values of equity, right? Like I'm not right. trying to build this connection with someone that we're just like, I know, like in, like value, I value, you yeah, shared, shared our values. values, right? Yeah. Um, And, you know, I would say like, it's one reason why we break the book up into like, there's stuff you work, you have to do on yourself and there's work you do with others. And those are not the same things. And sometimes, and this is one thing that a lot of white women do just because we are used to doing that with each other. We're used to the way we talk with each other, that sometimes we can put that self-work onto other people, or we can ask people to join our self-work journey who may not have consented to join that self-work And with race, and if you ignore the power differentials, a lot of times black women, other women of color who have been marginalized in our society are asked to do work that women from a more power, historically power dominant group should be doing on their own, right? Yes. Absolve me of this. Make me feel better about this. Explain to me why you feel this way. Um, And it often comes from the place of, I really do want to get better, but you're again, centering your own journey at the expense mm-hmm. of someone else's and without their consent to come on this journey with you. Right. Right. Um, and so it was important. One of the audiences for this book really was white women who care about equity. And after the summer of 2020, there were lots of them who yeah. popped up. Yes. Right. And the question then was, well, what do you do about it? Because there's a lot of book reading, but then what? And that's one of the things we wanted to try. Okay. To so here we are three white women. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are. Right. And I think we have we, to put that out we there. Do. Um, we should. Yeah. That here we are three white women talking about racial equity, racial equity, uh, you know, and. I guess I feel like, are we allowed to do that? Should we not have a person of color here with us? Yeah. And we just threw this back. Help us. So obviously we should always be thinking about like how diverse or homogenous our networks are and things like that, which I think is we've talked about, like, it's just, these are the, you know, but we, I think there's a discomfort of talking about race for a lot of white people where like, sometimes I remember people that kind of just like, you'll get to a point of describing someone's race. And then there's a, well, what do I say about that? You know, mm-hmm. instead of like, okay, right. Like owning and there's a fear of doing it wrong. So then we just avoid it, which make, which is the wrong, re- like anytime we're afraid of doing something wrong with anything else, we talk about how do you build your courage? How do you build the skills? How do you do yes. with this? There's a runaway kind of oh, or a gosh, outsourcing so and outsourcing of it. Well, I'll join this organization and everyone will know I have these values. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I, how can I, can I wear this t-shirt and then everyone will know I share these values. Right. Can I put a sign in my front yard that, and it's not that those are bad things. It's just, they're not enough to be truly an ally. I've always felt like you do have to do your individual work. Yes. You have to explore the digging that you talk about in the book because it's yeah. Otherwise it's just platitudes. It's like, Oh, I'm I'm an ally about that. Like some, there is work that is better if we as white women are sitting together and doing it because for, if you have someone who has a different set of skills, like I have, because I've been working at it for longer than some white women have, right. Not every white woman, right. But some white women have, you know, and some of that work, like it's good to have within us before we go out and build bridges with other women. So we don't put our journey and our pain and our mm-hmm. defensiveness onto people who are already dealing with the yeah. societal load that we as women should understand as white women should understand. Cause we just talked about it, navigating a world that expects different things of us, the emotional yeah. labor of that. Well, adding on 
like I have faced a lot as a, as a woman. Right. But I've never faced anything like that made it harder because I was white. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that yeah, is right. Point. It's, uh, yeah. it's the added layer it's the added and it's layer. understanding it's it harder for me. Right. Um, right. And so I think when we talk about this, it's important to recognize, right? Like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, here's how you build deep friendships with black women. Right. But I can say, here's how you can work on yourself. So you're ready to meet people in an authentic way. You're ready to risk take on their behalf. You're ready to be vulnerable. And what that means is to own out, own up, like we talk about owning your privilege. And I think it's become such a buzzword, but all that means to me is, oh, I haven't had to deal with this. What might that be like? Mm-hmm. And doing that work mm-hmm. on my own instead of saying, tell me how hard your life has been, right? right? So that I can say, wow, that sucks. Or instead of if I see a situation where there's been racism happening, I'm not running to my black girlfriends and saying, you will not believe what I just saw. Cause sir, they already know, uh, right? but I'm running to my white girlfriends and saying, here's what I saw. What can we do? Help me figure out what I could have done different. Help me figure out how to navigate this so that I can be the advocate for other people that I would want other people to be for me. Right. And I think learning to stand beside or behind to elevate and uplift instead of to stand in front is a big journey from ally to what we call co-conspirators, right? Is the first phase of allyship is often, I'm going to use my power as a shield. I'm going to stand in front of you. I'll advocate for you. But sometimes that turns into not listening. It turns into almost this patronizing. Well, I know power differential. Yeah. And when you think about it, you know it, because we can all think about, well, if a group of men was like, I'm all for gender equity. Let me go in and get all the things I know you need. We'd be like, well, have you asked me what I need? Have you listened to what? Can you trust me to do this for myself? Can you elevate me? Can you, can you divorce yourself of some of this need to control the power and understand what I really need is to be elevated and uplifted and empowered in my life and not to be protected. Right. And we, unfortunately, white women sometimes. So would you say white women, our own struggle with gender inequality can actually help inform us how to be an advocate and to help and to, does that make sense in terms of racial inequality? Like it, it, not that they're this, I don't want to say that no, they're the same, same thing, but dynamics, we understand though. being the underdog. I would hope. And you write a lot about empathy yeah. as part of the bridge, right? right? Which is very feminine. Yes. So I think yeah. going back to tapping into your feminine, and I, I've been thinking about my experience as a CEO during George Floyd, during mm-hmm. the pandemic, you know, when, you know, the pandemic blew the roof off and we saw all the inequities and then George Floyd came along and it was like, boom, 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 boom. right in your face there. The summer of 2020 was an experience. Yeah. And I found myself, um, having to wanting to tap more into my feminine and do the shared power. I don't have the answers. Who do I know in the community that we need? I need to be listening to. How do you share power with, with our, you know, black leaders yeah. that were in our community um, without also to your point of over overloading them. It's not the responsibility yeah. to individually teach Solve us how to be, but, teach us. but the power differential became so, and I always felt as a woman CEO, the only woman in 49 years in this organization to ever be a woman to run it. I knew I was starting to do things differently 
and I knew there's risk in that, but something in me was like, I can't do it any other way. And so I do think the, I, I do think it's honest to say that you tapping into your feminine becomes a portal into being able to do this. That's a- you capture that so well, because that's one of the things that we were actively, because we got a lot of like, well, why do you call it shared sisterhood? Like men going to feel like they can't engage in this. And we said, well, we, it's very intentional. This was an intentional use of language. Why do men recoil against the world's word sisterhood? Right. Why do we, right. We talk about the, we talk every, every, I am a professor here. I have so many wonderful undergraduates that I connect with and all of their fraternities, their co-ed fraternities, they're all call each other brothers and they know what that means. That's okay. Yeah. (laughs) We fraternize. We do like the language we use, like we talk about this and we use sisterhood to say, well, there is a a, a communing um, that we're talking about. There's a cooperation that we're talking about. It's not about who yells the loudest, who competes the most, who's the most dominant. We're not playing a dominance. We are empathizing, listening, building bridges with each other in an authentic way. And we are saying that that is a way to build power, a co to co-build power. We're not eschewing power. We're building and sharing it. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, why do we have to do things in business the way we've always done things? Why do we have one pie, one piece, mm-hmm. right? Um, you're a CEO, you know what this means, where there's only ever one, yeah. right? There's only ever one. And many organizations are like this. Well, we'll have one woman, one man of color, one, right? Like, yep. And so what happens? You've set up a situation where the women are always competing with each other. Yep. Yeah. Because they know there's never going to be two or three of us, God nope. forbid, on this board. Scarcity, great yeah. scarcity. And it doesn't have to be that way, but there's a fear in that change, right? You have oh, to yeah. take a risk in it. It's a yeah. fear for the person doing it and the fear for everyone watching it. Because as much as we like to say, right, like everybody can win, there is a feeling of of depriving yourself, right? If you feel like you've always been set up to be entitled to some ease, to some co- level of comfort, and now I'm saying, no, I need you to feel uncomfortable. I need you to look around and really see people and see the way the world is. When you were 20. Yeah. <laughs> when you have to do that, yeah. like you have to sit with that discomfort. And I have grown very comfortable over the last probably five or six years sitting in discomfort and sitting in the, the not knowing. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who are not quite ready to sit in the discomfort and sit in the not knowing. Just because Tina trusts me and Tina and I are sisters right in this. There are lots of black women who do not trust me, right? And I would never expect that they should, right? We haven't built a bridge, right? Yeah. And I am certain that there are some, I know I've gotten emails when I'm on podcasts, et cetera, which is what you're saying, I like, but I'm sorry. I just can't believe it's real. I can't believe, Mm -hmm. which who am like, again, my choices, I could ignore it. I could get defensive about it. Well, you don't know me, right? Or I could say, wow, that just shows us how much work we have to do. And like, that sounds really high-minded. And I know that's one of the problems. It sounds really high-minded. Me saying those words doesn't mean that there aren't actual feelings behind me making those choices, that it's not hard for me or that I don't immediately feel hurt. Yeah. But it means that I've developed the skills to work through that and to not put my hurt on other people, which is a whole life journey that I have to go through. Sitting in the discomfort. I mean, I think that is such a theme for all of us and really a theme of this podcast as we 
choose to sort of step into this wild woman archetype and we start to choose to get us out of outside of the boxes that we've all been conditioned into, there's a lot of damn discomfort. Mm -hmm. And we have to learn to be able to be in that and to swim in the unknown and and keep showing up. And yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say the you write that this book really met the moment. Yeah. Um and timing is everything. And Me Too was happening. And then George Floyd. Um, and now we Me have- Me Too, Ferguson, then George Floyd. Right. It kind of all this happened within like a three yeah. or four year period of yeah. time. And now women's reproductive rights. Yes. And when I think about how the, the sisterhood idea of coming together around these issues where we do have common ground, um, the power we could have, the collective feminine could have. Yeah. And that while your book may feel aspirational to some people, I think the feminine rising together is the way forward. Yeah. So do we. Yeah. And so and the work, work, don't yeah. agonize, organize. Yes. Love that. Yes. Like, all right, let's organize. Yeah. What does this look yeah. like? Oh, this we is, could talk about I this know. all day. I but know. We, we have a special question that we always end with that <laughs> we want. We're so curious yeah, to hear. And I, we always like to end, Beth, with um, the emphasis must book women who run with the wolves about the wild woman archetype and how there are a few precious doors into the world of the wild woman. And I would consider you very much a wild woman mm -hmm. um, in how you're approaching your work and how you're stepping out and being an advocate and, and being vulnerable um, in how you write. So if you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much, you can almost not bear it. That is a door. And if you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. So which one of those doors, or are there more than one that you feel like is your, has been your key? So, wow. What a, what a beautiful question. First of all, um, and a poignant one, you know, I think, I think there are always multiple doors that take you that you take at different points of your journey and you're walking in and out of them at different points in your life. I think it is interesting being the movement from kind of late thirties into early forties for me. And, you know, I started my career with that ambition to like, I'm going to, I'm going to change things for women. Like I'm going to do this stuff. And I started at a university and I didn't get tenure there. I did not, I failed to get tenure. Like I say it, I failed and I own that. People say you didn't fail. I'm like, no, I did. I set a goal and I didn't reach it. I failed. Um, that's not a bad thing. Failure's not a bad thing. It's it's an opera, and that became my door. I think mm. because you know I learned a lot about the human condition. I learned mm. a lot about a lot a lot about the ways in which I hid things from myself. Right, I chose mm. not to see things. I chose not to address things. Right, that were clear. My my husband is one of those clear eyed sort of men where he'd be like. Well, I won't say I told you. I could see it. I'm like, yes. Well, I'm an optimist, darling. So you know, yes. I didn't see it, but. But I also had had to own that choice. It's not just yeah. my personality. I had to own that I chose not to see it because it was harder. Right? It was easier for me to not, right? Um, and when I had that happen, which was the biggest failure I've ever, ever had in my life, and the next morning I woke up and I'm like, wow, I'm the same person today as I was mm. before I had this. Mm. Wow, I'm the exact same person. I'm just sadder, right? But like mm, the, yeah. same, the same skills, the same family, the same yeah. everything. And what does that mean, right? And- when I started to, at that point, one of the things in academia, you don't get tenure, you could kind of a year to like find a new place and you're done, right? 
So I had a year to find what I wanted to do next and what a gift that year was. It was uncomfortable because I was still working with the same people who denied me tenure. <laughs> whole other lesson. But it was a year for me to figure out what I wanted to do. And I said, okay, if I'm going to continue on this academic journey, I'm going to do it on my terms at a place that meets what I see in a place. Otherwise there's a thousand other things I can do. Just like when I was a young woman and I didn't know I wanted to be an academic and all these things I thought I could do, I can still do those things. I'm probably better at those things now. Um, and I found it here, which was a department run by a woman who was a mom with a dean who was a woman by a, who was a yeah. mom and who knew, could see my journey and could see me and said, find your way. And I wow. stopped putting off stuff like this book or the work that I did. And I said, if I'm going to do this and get tenure, I'm going to do it in a way that's authentic to the change I hope to make. Well, thank you again for this yeah, beautiful conversation a, today. This thank you, Beth. Great. This has been so, so lovely. Yeah. And tell people if they would like to find your book or another place they can find you where they can do that. So uh, my website is bethalivingston.com. Um, and so a link to kind of the stuff that I'm doing, my research and the companies I've been working with. Um, you can also find our book everywhere you buy books. Hello, listeners. We want to let you know that we have so much gratitude that you join us in these conversations every week. We want to continue to uplift and connect with women-owned businesses and businesses that are supporting women. So if you are one of those or have a recommendation for someone that may want to sponsor an episode, please have them reach out at tendherwild.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Kate Moreland Coaching and Heartland Yoga. As a coach, I am an advocate for authenticity and well-being for individuals, organizations, and communities. Through my coaching work, I like to help you connect to your authenticity. Whether you're an individual, a leader, or an organization, your creative power lies in your authenticity. Doing the work to understand your strengths and acknowledge the patterns and rocks that are in your way is the path to well-being. Whether it's your career or your relationship with yourself or others, transformative change begins within. You can reach me at katemorelandcoaching.com. Heartland Yoga has been in business for nearly 15 years. I founded this studio with the intention for it to be a safe place where people could come and heal. I also knew that I wanted a business that fostered community and connection. So if you are looking to deepen your yoga practice, heal from physical, emotional, mental, wounds, or simply connect with people who are like-minded, Heartland Yoga is a place that we would love to welcome you into, whether it's online or in person. You can find out more information at www.heartlandyoga.com. And now the amazing singer-songwriter, Lissy Morris with Wild West. Thanks for joining us today. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Come back and rewild with us again next week. The